The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us here at Tower View Baptist Church as we bring to you a pre-recorded message in our series, Street Level Faith. And today's sermon is entitled, uh, Lord, uh, Why Don't You Drive, Lord? Excuse me, Why Don't You Drive, Lord? As we continue our study of questions during the pandemic. And hey, if you're watching this, this is your first time, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate you turning in, tuning in. And we know there's many places you could be, especially in the summer as things open up. So thank you as you join together with us as we study God's Word. For uh, Tower View members and attenders, we just want to continue to encourage you as, as you feel comfortable and led to join us more in person and drive in church or make a reservation to come inside. We miss you, uh, but we understand if this is the best way for you to go forth. And once again, thank you to Midwestern Seminary for helping us through this time. Uh, uh, we'll have a couple more of these, and then uh, we will do our own recording. But thank you to them so much. We greatly appreciate it. Let's read God, God's Word this morning. James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord as we read. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and he, speaking of God, is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting, though, is evil. So whatever, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. May God bless the reading of his word. Church, let's pray together and we'll start our study this morning. Father, as we come before you on this summer morning and just thanking you for the chance for this technology to go forward. Father, we know there's many who are served by this in our church locally, uh, even, even around the Kansas City area. But Father, we also know there, those are those watching who are picking this up in, in random places around the world. Father, who, whoever is watching this this morning, may your spirit speak clearly. May you speak through the pages of your word. Move me out of the way, Lord, and, and just, just speak. Father, forgive us our sins. There are so many, but Lord, as we come before you, we thank you for your son, Jesus, our Savior, who died in our place, who was buried, and who rose again. And Father, by him, through him, to him, and in him, we have all things for life and godliness. So Lord, give us wisdom today as we study these questions during the pandemic. Father, street-level faith, it's all about your word, and we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know you're having a bad day, for instance, when you wake up face down on the pavement, or I just wrote some of these down, and I want to make a point with these, but you know you're having a bad day when your wife says, good morning, say Bill, and your name is actually George, or you call suicide prevention, and they put you on hold, or, or you see your birthday cake collapses from the weight of the candles, or when you jump out of bed in the morning, and you miss 
the floor, or your twin sister or twin brother forgets your birthday. That, that really does cause you a bad day. Or your boss tells you not to bother taking off your coat or even checking into the computer system. Or you call the answering service and they tell you it's none of your business and your income tax check bounces. And finally, maybe a bad day happens when you put both contact lenses in the same eye. You know, you could fill that blank with many, many things. But one thing we like to have, especially in those silly scenarios, is control, don't we? I mean, our problem is that we, we don't believe life really has bad days, that, that it has unhappy business. We think if we work hard, eventually we're going to succeed. I mean, that's what we are told, right? Even as kids, shoot for the, st- shoot for the moon, and if, and if you miss, you'll be among the stars, is a famous quote in every high school counselor's guidance office. We think that, that suffering is short-term, and pain is the exception, and failure merely is a prelude to greater victory. These illusions leave us blindsided by setbacks and devastated, I would argue, by failure and loss and confused by pain. You know, we say to ourselves, this isn't, Lord, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. And when we talk about having a bad day as, as it should be one in a thousand or a million, but Ecclesiastes 1.13 reminds us and tells us as we open the study of James that all days really are bad and can be. That daily work under the sun is an unhappy business. Ecclesiastes 1.13. It is an unhappy business, it says in the ESV, that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. An unhappy business. So what do we do? We try in these times, these bad days, to play God. We, we plan, we toil, we scheme, we manipulate, we guilt, we, we, we do everything we can to control what we cannot control and in effect to play God. And our anxieties abound when we try to do this and God's peace, we're reminded, only abounds when we're not playing God and we're simply resting in Him. I mean, if we really believe God is big enough to bend evil around to serve good, like in the story of Joseph, then we don't need to play God. We just have to to relax and let him take care of it. Not let go and let God necessarily, but actively resting in him and doing what he's called us to do. And the way you, you go about this brings up some questions in these bad days as we try to play God. I mean, we ask the question, is God good? Will God do what he promised? Is God in control? Does God have the needed power to solve the issues that I bring to him, that we bring to him? And does God really care about me? These are all really big questions that come in as we answer this question today, why don't you drive, Lord? Answering the question, are there times when I really do play God? Do I really try to take over his throne? But the big idea today affirms this, is that either we trust God by affirming all his revealed wisdom, or we play God by deciding what he got wrong. And so, church, I want to remind you that your plans are fine as long as you realize God has the right to change them. And you could put hashtag uh, 2020 or COVID in there. And and saying, I'm never going to do that, God, is often followed by packing your bags in God's providence to go and do that very thing. God reserves all rights to rearrange our plans because he is God. Thus, we learn to trust and walk with open hands and not play God. But in James 4, 11 through 17, we are going to see two areas of life that we should not try to play God in, even in bad days. And it's very simple, and I think it covers all the bases. We should not play God, point one, in in, in how we treat others, and secondly, in how we treat ourselves. Because as we do that, as we seek that out, we're actually trying to do something we're not called to do, and that is trying to put our shoes in God's, our feet in God's shoes, and not allowing Him to be who He is. 
And that's where I want to pick it up in verse 11, is this, is let's not play God in how we treat others. Let's not play God, number one, in how we treat others, coming from verses 11 through 12. And you see that in verse 11. He tells us not to play God in how we treat others by not speaking evil against others. There's an outward action. You're reminded from James 1.22, and, and he kind of quotes it here in verse 11 and 12. He said that be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And James 5.9, which Pastor Nelson will preach on over the 4th of July weekend, says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so, friends, if we're going to follow, we're going to affirm God in all His revealed wisdom, we're not going to play God in how we treat others, we ought not to speak evil against one another. But with James, what James is about to address in verse 11 is not really a problem of the mouth or, or the vocab or the communication style or even the inflection or tone that you use. Once again, it's a problem of the heart. It's our tendency, even though the core message of the Word of God is that we've received a gift we could never earn or achieve or deserve, is that God has every reason for judging us and driving us out of His presence, and we want to hold that power as well, and we do it as we speak against others. And when James says, don't speak evil against one another, he's pointing us to at least three scenarios in some sub-points here that we do this in. We try to play God in, in how we treat others. The first place we might try to speak evil against others is in my head about you to myself. I will watch you, I will critique you, I'll pick up your weakness and your failures, and I'll notice the gaps in your righteousness, your walk with the Lord, your theology, whatever it is, and I'll talk to you, uh, I'll talk about you rather to myself, to me, maybe even in my prayers. And James says in verse 11, we are not to play God by speaking evil against uh, our brothers because the one who speaks against a brother judges his brother. And there's only one judge. That's one way we do this verse, trying to play God. Second thing we do in trying to play God is I'll speak critically of you, about you, to you. Maybe face-to-face, -face, maybe over a text, maybe in a letter, maybe in a group setting, whatever the context. But I think we do that more often than we think. I mean, I can't tell you how many marriages have sat with that are no longer locations of love or appreciation or grace or joy or anything like that. They become minefields of bitterness and criticism and judgment and indifference where records of wrong are more regular than a record of grace. And I wonder how much of our conversation with one another is more critical, more judging than encouraging and spurring one another, as Hebrews says, on to, to love and good deeds and promoting grace to one another as Christ has done for us. And so we, we may not we not say we play God, but we talk about others to ourselves. We talk about others to others. And finally, I think we speak against one another to others, even in a larger setting. You know, we talk about another's weakness and failures. I mean, can you believe Brother Bob? I mean, what was that guy thinking when he did that at church the other day? And, and there's some seductive delight in sharing a failure with someone else. So let me just, church, take a step aside here. If someone has come to you in trust and in confidence and it's not illegal, it's not going to harm someone else, there's no you know, legal option that you have to share that with, and they've trusted you, and you go and gossip and share that, you're doing exactly what James says not to do. You're trying to play God with that information. So why is this a struggle for us? Because we've got plenty of material to work with. You're never going to be around perfect people. You always see weakness. You always see failure. You always see sin. And there's another reason why that it's such a temptation 
to judge because judgment truly is easier than mercy. I mean, it's easier to stand apart from someone and point the finger and say, look, you're wrong, than to love them, forgive them, and get your hands dirty around them. Kind of sounds like our day today, doesn't it? But perhaps this third reason that we talk about others critically is that we ought to attend to the most. I mean, wouldn't you agree that the reason we judge according to James 4.11 is because of the pride in us? I mean, down in verse 16, it tells us that all such boasting is evil. It's arrogance. It's, it's something we shouldn't do. We believe we're more righteous than we are. We believe we're more disciplined than we are. We believe we're nicer and more moral than we really are and less needy than we actually are. And so we sit in a service to hear a convicting sermon, and we're thankful that someone else heard that sermon because they need that. I don't. I'm so glad Susie's here today because, boy, God, if you only knew what was going on in Susie's life, you know she needs that message. As a famous preacher says, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Brothers and sisters, the problem is not the problem of the tongue. It's the problem of the heart. And what is the law that James is talking about here in verse 11? He talks about if you judge by the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. It is the thought, the way that Scripture uses the language. It's, it's the law of God. It's the law that he has set up. It's the perfect standard by which God perfectly executes his judgments. And there's clearly something here from James 2.8, which says, if you really fulfill the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And church, if you want to be where you want to be in control, then you're going to play God by judging others because that is what God has warned us against. And instead of being patient and faithful and gentle and serving and doing all these things, you're actually fighting against God. Wasn't it John who said in, in 1 John 1, how, or 1 John 2, how can you say you love God who you cannot see when you don't love your brother who you can see? Friends, this is the reminder that we have. James is not arguing that it's wrong to bring gracious and loving assessment of the word of God to someone in need. We'll get there in a few weeks at the end of the book. It's not wrong to use the, the, the word of God as a mirror to your soul or to others. It's not wrong at all. It's, it's a call to submission. It's a call to check your own heart, to check your own self against the scripture. Are you allowing your social media, your, your, your in, every influence you have to be a part of growing people in Jesus Christ? Or are you there to tear them down? Before you post about the latest cultural thing, have you considered how your words might judge another brother or another sister? And James says, there's only one lawgiver and the judge who's able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So friends, he says, let's not play God. First major point with, with, with how we uh, judge others or how we treat others. He says we should not speak evil against others, but notice secondly, that we ought not to, and this sounds redundant, but verse 12, we ought not to judge others. There is but one judge, and he is not you. Look back at verse 12. He says, there's only one judge and one lawgiver. He's able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? God's judgment is worthy of your trust. His judgment, unlike ours, in every situation is always going to be utterly, faithfully righteous. But we aren't him, and he's not us. I mean, as leaders, even as pastors, we look down on could-be servants. Men look down on women. Women look down on men. Races look down on each other. And it's easy to sing the, with joy to the Lord, but have a critical judgment to somebody else. 
Friend, you are in the same boat as every Christian who calls upon the name of the Lord. In heaven someday, there's not going to be a Baptist denomination, a Presbyterian denomination, and one other ever believing denomination there is. There will be one body, and it will be together in Christ. And we can't play God on that day. But perhaps we then also should ascend to the throne of heaven, and we should question God and say, God, I don't like this person. You know, I just can't stand this person. And friends, we need to really check our heart because he says there's only one lawgiver and one judge, and that is God himself. And that is God himself. And everything that he tells us to do reminds us that people are important. Christian, if you are more concerned about winning an argument on Facebook or winning an argument over text or or winning some or, or proving that the latest conspiracy theory about COVID or the president or whatever out there, be very careful. Whatever you're thinking is great in that moment has ramifications for your relationship with that person and the church and everyone else. So I would ask you this morning, where have you with your loved ones, your friends, your brothers, your sisters in Christ, where have you tried to ascend to the throne of God to play judge, jury, and executioner? You know, I can't end these thoughts without once again pointing you to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was willing to face cruel and consistent criticism, Jesus was. He was willing to face rejection and injustice. He was willing to face mistreatment, all for the sake of our salvation. And here's why. So we, in our pride and our self-righteous and critical spirits, can go to him unafraid and say, Oh Lord, won't you forgive us? Oh Lord, won't you please help us? And Lord, that is indeed our prayer, that he does. Christian, if you are here and you are listening to this, you need to be reminded that you are not the judge. I'm guilty of this. You're guilty of this. Our church at times is guilty of this. May God give us great grace to love one another as we ought to and to seek out his will above all other things. That's point number one, is that let's not play God in how we treat others. Secondly, let's not play God in how we treat ourselves in verses 13 through 17. Let's not play God in how we treat ourselves, verses 13 through 17. Why? Well, he answers it here in verse 13. The first thing we should not play God in how we treat ourselves is it it leads to pride. Look at verse 13. He says, come now, you who say... Again, he's, he's kind of answering a silent objector here, someone in the congregation or, or the group he's writing to. Today or tomorrow, we will, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and make a profit. And that's where the quote ends. And, and, and let's not play God and how we treat ourselves leads to pride because it's about opportunity. And you notice that phrase there, today or tomorrow. I mean, these words are said with such self-confidence, aren't they? It, it puts me at the center of the universe. And there's an inertia to sin. There's a, there's a momentum to sin. Sin pushes us towards the center of the universe. It puts us in first place. It puts us in the driver's seat. But that is the one place where God and God alone is meant to be. It wasn't exactly the temptation of Adam and Eve. You remember that in Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 2? Satan came to him in the form of a certain and said, You can be like God. And you, don't, you, you can have his position. You don't have to live dependently. You can have your own place. You can... You don't have to live submissively. You can live in the center of your own world. But Christian, we have been called, haven't we, to a practical and functional upward Godward life. You've got to recognize that the sin in your heart pulls you in another direction. And when pride comes in, when you try to play God with how you treat yourself, and you say, you know what? Today or tomorrow, God, I got this figured out. My agenda, my time is my time. I've got this. 
God and God alone, though, is meant to be at the center even of your schedule. Remember, life is short. Death is sure. Judgment is coming. Eternity is forever. But yet God reigns. Heaven is rejoicing. Jesus is Lord, and He alone saves. But we need to remember that, that it is not about it is not about our pride leading us to the opportunity. But in verse 13, he also says there's some mobility we try to play God with. Did you notice that? He said, not only do people say, well, today or tomorrow I'm going to do this, but he says, we will go. We will go into or we will go. And surely one of the good things the Lord has taught us, hasn't he, during this COVID time, this pandemic, is how frail and how much our plans have always really been in his sovereign hands. And notice the emphasis here. He, they say, we will go. We will go. We, 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 we. It's kind of like when someone asks you in an interview, what's your five-year, your 10-year, and your 15-year plan? And, and it reminds you of Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Christian, God is going to interrupt your mobility. He's going to interrupt your opportunity. He will devastate your plans. He will plunder your plans even. All because he knows that what he wants for you is sometimes better. I mean, again, let's be clear here. This isn't saying that you shouldn't plan ahead if you're leading your family, sir, or, or, or ma'am, you're, you're supporting your husband. It doesn't mean you shouldn't plan for your kids or pray for your kids or you know, plan a vacation or anything like that. But it does come down to when you say that, God, I've got this. I don't need your input. I don't want your direction. I, I'm going to go for it anyway. And so he says that their pride led them to opportunities and mobilities that played God. But notice that a little thirdly there in, in, in verse 13, that their geography led them to another place. He says, we will go into, and here's the phrase, to such and such a town. Acts 17, 26. And God made from one nation, one man of every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. In the human economy where personal planning is everything, it's hard to grasp, isn't it, that your life is under the careful control of one another. You know, church, and I've shared this before, you, as we were looking several years ago now, five, five to seven years ago for a senior pastorate position, you know, there are several times we were so excited about a location where, where we thought, you know, they have a great school system. There's resources for us. You know, we can plug in here. That's closer to family. There's nothing wrong with those things. Those are great things, gift of God's grace. But as we planned about these things, we had to be reminded of this verse, that, Lord, you may send us in a geographical place where we may not want to serve or may not want to go. But, Lord, help us to be faithful to the task. And friends, Jesus is Lord. He can fulfill every promise because he rules over every situation, every location, and every relationship that must be delivered. But this group was so prideful. They said, God, I've got an opportunity. God, I'm going to go and I'm going to be mobile with it. And God, I've got the right place nailed down. I've got this figured out. But notice, fourthly, they also had pride in their durability. Did you see that? Or their duration? Verse 13, it says, and, and we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there. There are certain levels of joy and satisfaction you can only get on, on when you spend a long time at one place, right? But only living today with an eye to, to what you get in a short period can take your eyes off the things that really matter. Christian, as you make big decisions, as you go through life and you try to decide, Lord, where is it you want us to be? What opportunities? Where should we go? How should we go? 
May you pray, Lord, may it be about sustaining as long as you will at that place. Church, we said before, we don't plan on going anywhere unless God moves us or, 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 you know, or some failure takes us away. But we pray every day, Lord, keep us here faithfully. Keep us here faithfully. And that's what he's calling them to do. But in their pride, they said, Lord, I'm going to only spend this long there. Can you imagine a missionary telling God that? God, I, I'm giving you six months and psh, I'm out. Check me off. I'm done. Put me out, coach. That's pride. And that's playing God with durability and duration. And finally, notice the, the, their pride and prosperity. It says, and they will go there for a year and, and, quote, trade and make a profit. Again, high expectations. They knew the lay of the land. They had it all figured out. They had their formula down from business school. Their MBA was speaking. And it's not wrong to want to be successful. It's not wrong to want to have things. It's not wrong to want to make a profit. It's not wrong to have your life, uh, you know, wanting to, to provide for your family. But it is wrong to have your life shaped and directed by those things. It is wrong to have your heart ruled by it. And church, I would say, as your pastor, I'm deeply persuaded that one of the huge and weakening temptations for our church, even at Tower View, and, and I'd say across America, is materialism. We like stuff. We like stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff. Why do we have garage sales? Because we have too much stuff. What do we do with that money from garage sales? We usually buy what? More stuff. We live in a culture that says it's about the here and now. It's about the size of the pile. He who dies with the most toys wins, we say. And you may be deceived by this temptation because you look at your life and it seems like you're staying inside of God's boundaries. It seems like you're obeying his law, but in a subtle way, growingly, your heart is being given away to something other than him. It's being given away to another truth, another call, another kingdom other than his call and his kingdom and his agenda. Perhaps our closets really are more way fuller than any should be. Perhaps we eat more than we should, spend more than we should, live in bigger houses than we should, perhaps because we have been deceived and we bought it, that somehow, some way, satisfaction, life, and happiness will come when we play God and control our little sector. We control the opportunities, we control the mobility, we control the duration. We control the prosperity. We control all those things. We need to pray, church, for protection against the subtle sin of materialism. Some of you in our church, you're watching this, have lost your job. But even in the loss of a job, you can still crave and want and lust after things that at one time perhaps you could buy easily without even breaking the bank. We play God by how we treat ourselves first and it leads to pride. But I want you to notice in verses 14 through 15, it leads to presumption. It leads to assuming things. It leads to thinking we know the right path. And, and, and he shows you how this fleshes out. Notice the first part of verse 14. The presumption of playing God with ourselves comes in that we have no information about tomorrow. He says in verse 14, the first part, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. When we put ourselves in the center of the world, when we act as those we're in charge of more than we actually are, we deny how little we know and understand about our lives. We act like we know much more than we actually know. I mean, reflect on this for just a minute. Think about the mystery of your life. I mean, no one who's watching this could have even two decades ago said, you know, in March 2020, 
in the middle of the month, somewhere around St. Patrick's Day, the whole country of America, and in fact, the whole world by extension, would shut down for about 60 days or so, give or take. It's not that you don't know about that, but you did not know what that moment would bring. And so you need to find your security, not in what you could guess, not in what prediction you might bring, because you don't know about tomorrow. You need to find your security, Christian, if I can speak to you for a moment in the revealed wisdom of God, in the Word of God, in the Scriptures. Because it, by the Spirit, tracks you down, it directs you. You're driven back to humility. You're driven by the mystery of your own life to say, Lord, I really have no idea what I'm doing, but your Word tells me to do this. Help me just to be faithful in that. And you're driven to the wisdom of a sovereign God who knows everything from beginning to end and all the details. And his word reveals to you how to live inside of the plot of your story so that you will never go astray to the point that you will want to run away from him. Christian, have you humbly embraced the mystery of your own life? I mean, have you embraced the wonder of it? Have you considered how massively different your life would have been, for instance, if you were born in the slums of New Delhi and Northern India, or uh, you had been born in the, the, the dark ages of medieval Europe, or if you'd been born in a wagon train heading out to the pioneer Northwest. I mean, imagine how little control we actually have of our lives. It makes it hard, really, if you think about it, to play God. Because our power is small, but the mystery is wide. And I'll never fully understand every detail. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost Loved ones, some of you have been in messy divorce situations where, where, you know, to use that phrase, you were the innocent party, we're all sinners, but you were not the one that left that marriage. There's a mystery to that all. And because God is my rest, I can live in the middle of the mystery because I don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't want to play God with tomorrow. It's wholesome to affirm the mystery, God, you got this. But God is everything and everywhere around us because he's directing us through the fog. His word is a lamp into my feet and what a light into my path. If you've ever tried to run on a trail before with lights on your feet, um, it actually lights up more than you think. God can take you through places you've never known because he's the only one who knows them anyway. But but you also have no guarantee of long life. I mean, we kind of spoke about this, but notice the second part of verse 14. He says, what is your life? It's a vapor, it's a mist, it's, it's, it's just a fog that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And I think that's one of the dangers of our society. We really do live for the here and now. We really do. And, and we don't always think about eternity. But brother or sister, if there is no eternity, the entire ballgame has changed. If there is no eternity, it's about the here and now. It's about the affluence. It's about the, the power, the pleasure it's about let's eat, drink, and be merry, as the scripture says, for tomorrow we die. Or maybe I recognize this present life is like a, a, a mist and it passes away and the eternity will be forever and ever and ever and ever. And it's about a moment of preparation. And it's crucial to a biblical way of approaching life to live every day with forever in view. You know, there's that old illustration, I learned it from Billy Graham many years ago about eternity You know, if you were to take a bird, say an eagle, if it's possible, an eagle flies on the top of Mount Everest and every year he knocks off a rock with his wings. He does that, those birds do that for generation after generation until Mount Everest is leveled to the ground. When Mount Everest is leveled to the ground, eternity, Graham said, has just begun. 
Christian, I get caught up in it too. We forget this life is really short. Yesterday I was 18, today I'm 36, tomorrow I'm 54, and, and then I die. What is your life? The commands of the Lord only make sense if you have a forever view. The grace of the Lord only makes sense if you have a forever view. The promises of the Lord only make sense if you have forever in view. The kingdom of your calling only makes sense if you consider how long of a call it is. The stewardship, the sacrifice, the holiness only makes sense if you live for eternity. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above. Church, we are, we are in a pandemic. There are real concerns. We've talked about some of them in our, in our Zoom calls and other things over the weeks. But I just want to remind you, this is not your home. You are passing through. You are a resident alien. Be involved here. Do the, the work of the gospel here. Do everything you can to promote and, and love and serve through Christ and His strength and His power. But it's dangerous to forget forever. And if there is none, then I want all the control I can get so I can acquire all that I can get in this life. It is a sin not only to be prideful, but it's also a sin to presume with presumption that because you have no info about tomorrow, you have no idea or guarantee of this life. And he finally tells you here the second subpoint: you have no license to ignore God's will. Notice verse 15. He says, instead, so he tells you what to do, James says, instead of doing all these other things, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. And let me say this, James is, is not encouraging for us some sort of meaningless rosary, you know, Hail Mary, if I will, Christian catchphrase, if the Lord wills. You know, something you tack on just to make it worthwhile. Just because you pray in Jesus' name and you tack on Jesus' name does not mean Jesus is behind every one of your plans. I'm not saying to you that it's not a wholesome thing to say if the Lord wills. It's a very wholesome thing to say. It's in the scripture, right? I think it's a wonderful thing. But would you pray? For instance, fathers, would you pray thinking about your families, your kingdom come, your will be done in my family as it is in heaven? Husbands, wives, would you pray your kingdom come, your will be done in our marriage as it is in heaven? If you're a worker, essential or non-essential, whatever it is these days, your kingdom come, your will be done, Lord, in my job as it is in heaven. Students, would you pray your kingdom come, your will be done in my studies and my academic life, my sports life, my extracurriculars as it is in heaven? Would some of you struggling with your physical body say, Lord, your will be done, your kingdom come, done, come hell or high water with my health and my physical body as it is in heaven? Would you submit to the sovereignty of your Lord and Savior? What James is saying is that we ought to be very careful not to presume for one second that we have a license to ignore God's will. But we should not use that license as a way to tack him on to everything we want to do in this life. We talked about that last week. That sometimes when we pray, we come before God. And he says in James 4 too, you have not, like Jesus says, because you ask not. Well, Lord, I just want this. and Give me that in Jesus' name. And we do those things. And that's not what he's saying. You see, the words that you must speak are words of submission. Lord, it's your will to be done. Lord, it's your will. Christian, this goes even for those people you're praying for to come to know Jesus Christ. 
that, that you have no control. You can't, you can't, you can bring the best sales technique, you can bring the best laid-out presentation of the gospel, but unless God and his Holy Spirit and his divine sovereignty so moves on that sinner's heart, there is no fruit unto repentance, conversion, regeneration, whatever word you want to throw out. They won't get saved. So as we pray, Lord, let your will be done, we don't presume just because we say we're going to do it, just because we plan we're going to do it, just because we have it in our minds that God's going to say, boom, okay, go for it. We live in the will of God, the revealed will of God in his scripture. We say, Lord, help me to be faithful here. And as I'm faithful, Lord, here's everything else I'm considering. What do you say? Lord, I'm at your call. Your servant is listening. Lord, we love you, but Father, help us in this case. We should not presume to do those things. So we should not play God in how we treat ourselves because it leads to pride, it leads to presumption, and finally, it leads to pain. Verses 16 and 17. He says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance or your pride. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Christian, you see, it's not enough just to reduce the sin, your definition of sin, down to some externalistic behaviors like the Pharisees to try to jump through. Sin, as we always say, is not a matter of rules. It's not a matter of externals. It's a matter of the heart. What could be more sinful than the pride and arrogance of self-rule in the face of the sovereignty of God? Saying, I got this, God. And what could be more ugly? If you think about it for a second, what could be more ugly than to my own life as it is where I've been bought with a price by God, but I try to do my own thing. It's possible to think you're inside of God's boundaries when you're actually living way outside of God's boundaries because you put yourself in a place where only God can be. I mean, has your life been touched by these dangers? Have you forgotten who you are? Have you put yourself in God's position? Have you been seduced by the here and now of materialism of the surrounding world? He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. These Jewish Christians he's writing to were saying, we understand, we got it, we know how to live, we got all these things. And Tower View, we can do that as well. You know, praise God, we're remodeling the nursery. Praise God, we've got a whole bunch of momentum and a whole bunch of other ministries. And we also have a blank slate with COVID to really say what's most important for our church right now. But in all these things, all these great ideas, and thank you so much, so many of you, for providing your prayerful feedback. May we submit each of those bullet by bullet, point by point to God and say, Lord, is this it? Kind of like when uh, uh, Samuel went before uh, Jesse, the father of David, and he went down each brother. Lord, is this the next king? Lord, is this the next king? Is this the next king? So too we do with our plans. So too we do with our future, church, because we don't know what tomorrow holds. But we do know that if we come to him humbly, we will not be boasting in our arrogance. We will not be boasting that which is evil, but we'll seek to honor him. Hey, where do you run when these things come? Well, I pray that you run to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to do our Father's will. He, with every deed, with every thought, with every action, with every intent and choice, he truly and utterly, in perfection, sinless perfection, was perfectly submissive. Jesus never was seduced by pride. He was never seduced by materialism. I mean, Satan offered him the world, which is really a contradiction. That's a whole other sermon. He lived a humble life. Jesus was willing to live without many of the things we would say are absolute necessities. 
And in his submission, Jesus was willing to face cruel rejection, physical torture, injustice, the wrath of God, and the turning away of his Father. I mean, hear this. Every act of Jesus' submission, Christian, was for you because that submission took him to the cross where he would carry the penalty for your sin. So whoever knows the right thing to do and failed to do it, for him as it is a sin, that can never be said of Jesus. That submission took him to a borrowed tomb where he busted out of there and he was able to, 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 to show once and for all that he alone is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so this morning we turn and run to him and say, once again, Lord, this passage, Father, we seek your forgiveness. We seek your power. We seek that salvation that can only be found in your son's name. Again and again, we come back to the place where you've called us to be. And look, if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, we haven't really spoken to you a lot today. Thank you for your patience. We usually do that more in the sermon. But I just want to remind you, if you look at this passage and you hear this passage and you say, you know, this doesn't really apply to me. You've said Christian, 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 Christian a lot, Pastor. How does this apply to me? It's a great question. Verse 17 especially applies to you, my non-Christian friend. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Let me be very clear. Non-Christian, there is only one way to heaven. The Bible says the wages of sin is death that you have offended with high-handed rebellion against the sovereign God of the universe. That you, even being born in this world, even as a toddler, a cute little toddler, had so much sin that God himself literally had to come down in the man Jesus Christ to, to die for your sin. And there's nothing you can do to right that wrong. You can't pay him back. You can't serve him enough. You can't be good enough, sincere enough. You can't be humble enough. You can't do anything to earn his favor back. And so this morning, non-Christian friend, I especially wanted to reserve this verse 17 for you because the Bible is clear. You are to repent. You're to turn away. You're to 180. You're to you turn away from your sin and run to Jesus Christ. To go to him and say, Lord, I believe that you alone can save me. You alone are able to take my sin and forgive me. I believe that, that, Lord, that you died for me, that you were buried for me, that you rose again for me, that you're coming back for me. And I repent. I trust you alone for my salvation, for my forgiveness of sin. And you say, yeah, that's great, Darren. I'm just not convinced. Well, we pray for you. Again, we're super, super stoked and happy and grateful and humbled and all the good stuff that you joined us this morning. But in all sincerity and all honesty, if you have heard the gospel, even in a brief 30 seconds, I shared it with you. That is the right thing to do. That is the only thing to do. It's the only decision that really matters in, in the grand scheme of things. Either Jesus is Lord of your life or he's not. Either you're for him, he said, or you're against him. So whoever knows, James 4, 17, the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Non-Christian, there's no second chance. When you die, you don't go to purgatory. When you die, there's no soul sleep. When you die, there's no reincarnation. When you die, there's no, uh, Lord, I did my best, so here's my best. I hope it outweighs my bad. It's hogwash. That's a theological term, I think. It's hogwash. You either believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, or you don't. But if you reject him, James says in a broader application of the scripture that it is sin. It is sin to damnation of your soul. 
And I speak frankly because it's a serious thing. God does love you. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. What other God has done that? A law of Islam doesn't. Uh, the gods of Hinduism make you go through lifetimes from a pig to an apple to a worm to a person or whatever else you got. Only the God of Christianity, the one true God, has said, I'm coming to you. And you're not saved by what you do. You're saved by what he has done. Come to him. Christians, this morning as we close, I just want to ask you, have you played God in how you've treated others? Have you played God in how you have treated yourself? It's a big question, but I pray as we close, you consider that as you pray silently with me. Let's close in prayer. Fathers, we come before you as we share the gospel once again. We thank you for the book of James, Lord. We are one, we are four-fifths of the way through. Hard to believe, Father. Time goes so quickly. But Lord, as we come before asking the question, why don't you drive, Lord, uh, the street-level faith series, I pray, Lord, especially for our Christian brothers and sisters, that the way we're treating each other, the way we're treating ourselves, does not presume or bring pride or, or anything like that, Father, or pain. I pray that it is not something that we're judging others. I pray we're not speaking evil of others. Father, not just to be good moral people, good churchgoers, but to lift up the name of Jesus, that with one voice we would glorify your name. Father, I'm also praying for our non-Christian friends watching this. Maybe the same day this is launched on Facebook and YouTube, maybe it's a week later, maybe it's years later. Father, it's in your hands. But Lord, I pray as they reach out to us for questions and other things that you would be glorified. Draw people to know Jesus Christ. Father, bless the hearing of your word today and the doing. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you so much for watching this morning. Again, my name is Darren Smith, Senior Pastor at Tower View Baptist Church, especially if you're not a Christian. Please message us. Drop us a comment below. Message us. Our phone number is 816-368-1330. Call or text. Our website's tireofukc.com. Don't wait another minute. God bless. Have a great day. Thank you.